Our second lesson comes from Paul's letter to the church in Rome. We are in uh, chapter 8 and reading today verses 31 through 39. I encourage you again to turn in your scriptures and follow along as I read now from God's holy and inspired word. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies, who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to him and to him alone. Amen. We come today to what is undeniably the crescendo of this movement within the symphony of Paul's letter. Contained within these verses is an affirmation of faith that thrills the heart of every believer and communicates a truth that is so central to the gospel that we desire to hear these words over and over again. From the beginning of verse 1, where we heard that there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, to verse 17, where we learn that we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, to verse 28, where we learn that whatever suffering we must endure in this life is ultimately working to our good, to these closing verses where we learn that there is nothing that can separate us from God's everlasting love, this eighth chapter of Romans is intended to assure every believer that if they are in Christ, then they are eternally secure. Throughout Paul's letter, we have grown aware of his literary style, which is to pose questions that either he has heard or questions that are common to most believers. And in every case, he then offers a response that is designed to settle the question once and for all. And he does so again here in verse 31 as he asks the question, what then shall we say to these things? Now this question is designed to bring everything that he has said until now to a definitive conclusion. In other words, all of the assertions that he has been making 
are not mere hypotheses, but they are certainties that lead to deductions filled with spiritual implications. And the first of these has to do with the eternal security that is derived from the truth that God is for us. If God is for us, Paul asserts, who can be against us? Now, for the last many chapters, Paul has been meticulously explaining all that God has done for us in Christ. Actions that lead to this deduction that God is for us. Not for the full whole human race, but rather for those who are in Christ Jesus. Remember, he has just said that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are the called according to his purpose. It is these called ones that he has in mind when he declares that God is for us. But the notion that God is for us raises another question. Who then can be against us? Paul is pointing out that there is a certain absurdity connected to anyone who wants to argue that believers have any legitimate adversaries. Now I realize that we do have adversaries. The Scriptures tell us that we have an adversary who's like a roaring lion prowling around seeking whom he may devour. And we have many adversaries. But when you consider that it is God the Father who has intervened in our lives and rescued us from the power of sin and death in Christ Jesus, then is there really any adversary of whom we should fear and tremble? Jesus said one day, So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the rooftops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. If God, who is without rival, is for us, then who can possibly legitimately be against us? It is a rhetorical question whose answer is in the question. There's no one greater than God. And God we know is for us. How do we know that? We know this because God did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us. We know that God is for us because He did not keep the Son from making the necessary sacrifice to pay for our sin while simultaneously turning aside the wrath of God from us. We know that God is for us because He raised up the Son on the third day to show His good pleasure in the Son's atoning work. We know that God is for us because He invited the Son to take His place at the Father's right hand until all His enemies will be turned into a footstool and there He intercedes for us. We know that God is for us because He not only gave us the Son, but He has given us His own Spirit to dwell within us and has promised us an inheritance that is being kept in heaven for us. And because God cannot lie, we know that our hope in this is not an empty wish, but it is a certainty. If God is for us, 
who can be against us. There is no one. But then Paul asks another question. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Within the world of jurisprudence, there is a legal understanding that in order for someone to initiate a charge or to file a lawsuit, they must have suffered in some way for which there would be a remedy. So if you witnessed a driver sideswipe a car and then leave the scene, you could not press charges against that individual unless it happened to be your car that was struck. You might have the license plate of the car that did it. You might even have gotten a good look at the driver and you might be able to pick him out of a lineup. You might even have a video of the entire thing. But if you are not the injured party willing to press charges against him, you would not have standing. And this is Paul's point here. He is asserting that if God is for us, then who is there that would have standing to bring any charge against the elect? Paul's point is that there is only one person against whom we have sinned, and that's the one who made us and gave us the first command, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's no one else who can point the finger and accuse us because we did not sin against them. Now, Satan is often referred to as the accuser. But even he cannot make a valid charge against us because he was already in rebellion to God when he tempted Adam and our offense was not against Satan. We actually did what Satan wanted us to do. The rest of the heavenly host were not directly aggrieved by our disobedience. No other human being can point the finger at us and cry, Aha! Because they're in the same boat as we are. They have no standing because they are equally guilty. So when Paul raises the question, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? He is pointing out that it is a legal impossibility for anyone to object to what God has done in Christ. Those who are outside of Christ have no standing to bring a charge against us because they are without excuse in their own guilt. And whenever they attempt to make a charge against us, what they are really doing is declaring that God is unjust in forgiving us of our sin. But they do not understand the gospel because God is not unjust for forgiving us of our sin because God paid for our sin in Christ. God is the one who has justified us and is the only one who has standing to accuse us. But if he has taken the steps to justify us, does anyone believe that God would seek to undo his own atoning work and now make charges? Of course not. That would be nonsensical. And so then Paul continues this thought by raising the question, well, if there is no one who can bring any charge against the elect, is there anyone with any standing, who could even legitimately condemn us? If not God the Father, then what about God the Son? But that also makes no sense. 
because the Son is the one who willingly took our place. The Father gave the Son to the world, but not in a way that was contrary to the will of the Son. The Son volunteered to take our place. He says in John 10, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then he says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And so if Christ did so, then why, after having done so, would he reverse course and decide later to be our accuser? He was raised for our justification, and according to verse 11 of this same chapter, it was the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead who now dwells within us. So it isn't just the Father and the Son who have no interest in bringing a charge against us. The Spirit does not either. The Spirit has taken up residence in us and would not have done so had He been inclined to accuse us. Furthermore, the Son is currently engaged in a ministry of intercession on our behalf, seated at the right hand of the Father, serving as our advocate, as one who knows what it is to be tempted. Hebrews 2.18 declares, For because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. And Hebrews 4.15 declares, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. This intercession of the Good Shepherd is not passive, but is an active work. And He will lead us to green pastures and still waters. He will guard us against the wolves and will neither slumber nor sleep. The sun is not going to fail in leading us all the way home. Well, if there is no one other than God that has standing, and if God is not inclined to bring any charge against us, and if God is not inclined to condemn us because of what the Son has done on our behalf, then is there anything that we could do, that we could do, to cause God to withdraw His love from us? Who or what shall separate us from the love of Christ, Paul asks. Now this is our challenge, is it not? There are moments in our lives when trial and tribulation come and we begin to question whether our standing with God has changed. Or worse than that, we begin to question the everlasting quality of God's love for us and we are tempted to bring a charge against God for being unfaithful in His promises to us. So to address this situation, Paul asks the question, when trouble arises... What are we to make of it as it pertains to God's love and our standing with Him? Do times of tribulation indicate a retreat of God's love? Do times of distress indicate that our standing with God has changed? What about times when the world's persecution sets in and we must endure threats of death or severe trouble? Suppose global famine strikes or financial collapse that reduces us to beggarly status. What if hurricanes strike or Caesar demands that we recant 
or be killed? What should we conclude in the face of circumstantial evidence that robs us of the peace that Jesus promised to give us? How often, when circumstances such as these occur, do you hear the charge brought against God that says something like this? Would a loving God allow such a thing to happen? Now, there are those in Florida that have asked that question in the last several days. But the answer to the question is very different depending on whether that person is in Christ or not. Jesus' own disciples, when they were on the stormy sea and Jesus was fast asleep in their boat, what was their question to him when they finally awakened him? Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And yet, as those same disciples grew in their understanding and they got on the other side of the resurrection, there came that moment when they suffered for the sake of Christ because of the gospel and after they had been beaten and released from custody, we are told that they left the council rejoicing, having been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the sake of the name. Paul knows that this is a perennial question when trouble strikes. The quote he offers here is from Psalm 44. For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now we sometimes find this scriptural reference to be an interruption to the flow of Paul's thought and majestic literary argument. But it is a perfect illustration of the thought that occupies the minds of the people of God when trouble strikes. For the psalmist is voicing the questions that arose when the nation of Israel was suddenly not on the winning side of military conflict, but were suffering from horrible defeat. The tide had turned against them, and it was such a reversal of fortunes that it caused the people to question the love of God. And yet this is the reality of those who are in Christ. The gospel is not what Joel Osteen and others like him serve up week in and week out. The notion that God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise is not scriptural. What is scriptural is, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. In the book of Revelation, there is that moment when the lamb who was slain is opening the seven seals of the scroll that no one else was able to open. And when the Lamb opens the fifth seal, John reports, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long? before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. And then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. 
when we are called upon to undergo tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or any other calamity, it is not an indication that our standing with God has changed. For once we are in Christ, we are forever in Christ. Nor is it an indication that God's love has been withdrawn from us. And while we may struggle to sense it in those moments, we must never doubt that it is there and that it is constant. For the love of God is engaged in a sanctifying work in us that will result in His glory and for our good. I want you to notice how Paul answers his own question. Who or what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Whatever negative emotions we might experience in times of circumstantial uncertainty, they are not reality. In God's economy, in fact, they are 180 degrees removed. Paul declares that in those moments of doubt, the true reality is that we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Now, it isn't that we achieve the victory, but rather it is that Christ has gained the victory on our behalf, and because we are in Christ, We too are victorious. We share everything that He has attained. We are righteous, not in and of ourselves, but because He's righteous. We are raised from the dead because He was raised from the dead. We are seated in the heavenly places because He is seated in the heavenly places. Because He is glorified, we will be glorified. We are conquerors because He is conqueror. So it isn't that in this temporal world we shall obtain victory over anything to which we set our hand, but rather in the war to end all wars. We shall be victorious because Christ has already won the victory through His life and death and resurrection and ascension. The victory has never been in doubt. And even the spiritual enemies of Christ know this to be true. As soon as the Son put on our flesh and confronted a man possessed, the demon within that man asked whether or not the time had arrived for his destruction. He asked, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Before Jesus ever amassed a huge following intent on witnessing His healing miracles, before Jesus ever proclaimed His Sermon on the Mount or fed the 5,000 with a few fish and loaves of bread, before Jesus ever went to the cross and suffered for our sakes or rose from the dead three days later, the spiritual forces that opposed the throne of God knew who He was and why He came and that their eternal damnation was sure and certain. 
And this is what causes Paul to proclaim that even in moments when life appears dark and foreboding and that all is lost, the reality is that we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Beloved, that is not a statement designed to tell us that we will eventually get through this and all will be well. That is a statement designed to convince us that the eternal victory that Christ has won is also our victory because by faith we are in Christ. Now to put his final stamp on this affirmation, Paul offers a litany of things that might enter the mind of the average believer who is disposed to questioning the love of God, but Paul declares that he has been absolutely convinced, absolutely persuaded that these things have absolutely no effect when it comes to the love of God. But he offers them here as a means of covering all the bases. So he says, whether we live or die, we are secure. Whether the powers that oppose us are spiritual or material, we are secure. Whether the challenges come today or tomorrow as sometime off in the future, we are secure. Whether our trouble comes from above or below, from this world or the underworld, there is nothing that can interfere or disrupt the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And of this Paul is convinced. And he wants you to be convinced as well. There may be no clearer statement in all of Scripture that is designed to assure believers that they have security in their salvation. The love of God is such that nothing will interfere with God completing His plan to redeem us and restore us to what we were before the fall. But more than that, to bring us to the future glorification that God had planned for us from eternity past. And beloved, if you are in Christ, then this is your eternal future. Now let me ask you, have you personally come to recognize your own sin and your need for a Savior? Have you come to a point of repentance and complete surrender to Him? Because this is the only way by which any of us will be saved. The Apostle Peter declared that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And if the Holy Spirit is urging you today to believe on the Lord Jesus, then I also urge you to do so even now as we come together in a time of prayer. Please pray with me.